The following for the city sermon is from our sermon series by Pastor Scott Rising entitled Feast for Failures from the book of Luke. We hope you enjoy it. Let's jump in. Luke 3, 21 to 22. That's where we're going to start. If you were here with us last week, what you'll remember is John the baptizer came out of the wilderness, right? And he's got locusts sticking out of his tongue, right off his teeth. He's got honey dripping off his beard. And he's telling everyone right now, repent, repent. Why? Because the king is coming. Get your lives straight. Get them right. And people started to come and they were being baptized. And, and how did he greet them? He says, you brood of vipers. <laughs> Could you imagine that as you're greeting at church? Right? You sons of Satan. Who told you to flee the coming wrath that was to come? And so they come and, and they start to get baptized in the, the Jordan River. But he started, he's, he's talking about there's one that's coming that's far greater than me. I'm not even able to tie his sandal or to untie his sandal. This one's going to baptize you, and he's going to baptize you by fire. He's going to baptize you by the Holy Spirit. And then this kind of preaching, by the way, is not real attractional, although a lot of people were coming. It got him thrown in jail. But sometime before getting thrown in jail because of that style of preaching, he actually baptized Jesus. And let's look at that. Luke 3, 21 through 22. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were open, the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Let's look at that just for a moment. First off, notice all, all three persons of the triune God are present at Jesus' baptism. As Christians, we worship one God, three distinct persons, Father, Son, Spirit. And they're all present right here, right now. Jesus is praying, and now he's equipped with the Holy Spirit, his, his power and the assurance of the Father's love. Notice that, and, and don't miss it, because there's a beauty to this. Now, I could preach a sermon on that. We're not going to. But, but notice this. You, you should be saying, well, that's lovely. But then you also ought to say, wait a minute. John's baptism was a baptism for what? Well, it was a baptism, according to verse 3, for repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And if you're paying attention, you should be like, hmm? Jesus? Because that's exactly what's happening to, to, to John the baptizer. And you can see it more explicitly in Matthew's gospel. You can listen as I read. Matthew's gospel Chapter 3, verse 3, 13 through 14 says this. Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And, you, and do you come to me? Can you, can you feel that he's, he's confused by this? It, it's a confusing thing, really. Like, Jesus, why are you coming to be baptized by me? I need to be baptized by you, right? And, and so... It should bring up questions, right? Jesus, the beloved Son of God, does he need to be baptized for the forgiveness of sin? Answer, no. He doesn't have any sins. He's perfect. He has no sin to repent of. Okay, so then, then why? That is a good question, and we'll get to that in a minute. But notice this. Point one is Jesus is God's eternal beloved Son. He's perfect. He's perfect. In him, there is no sin. He never failed. <laughs> So then why is Jesus, the sinless one, submitting to something that sinners need? It's a great question. It really is. If you continue in Matthew's gospel, verse 15 says, Let it be so for now, Jesus says, for thus it's fitting for us to fulfill 
all righteousness. And then John consented. See, Jesus didn't come to John to confess sins and to repent and to be baptized. He had no sins to repent of. He came to make himself one with those who submitted to this command in order to fulfill the law. Man, we could talk about that all day. We're not going to because throughout the gospel of Luke, Luke's going to continue to just build upon that theme, right? But he came to fulfill all that the law required. We see right here from the start that sinless Jesus is identifying himself with sinful humanity. He's identifying himself, right? A key word in understanding the gospel is the word substitute. Jesus substituted himself on the cross for us. He took the death that you and I deserve because of our sin. He had no sin, but he became sin so that he might absorb the wrath of God so that sinners like us might receive what? Forgiveness and righteousness, adoption, justification in the sight of God. But, but substitution's at the heart of the whole gospel, not just at the cross. And so Jesus right here is, he's substituting, he's showing, I identify myself with you. I put on flesh. You want to know what God's like? Look to Christ. Jesus said, it. He said I'm, I'm the exact imprint of the Father. If you've met me, you've met the Father, he would say. Right, And so here we see he's coming and he's considering himself to be one of us. What God is like that? I mean, really think about it. Every other religion is all about evolving our way to God. Right? Kevin just did a great job of reading the text. That's one more step, one more sticker. You're getting closer. Right? <laughs> Problem is, is you and I cannot get to God. It's, it's impossible. It's mission impossible. You can never be good enough to draw near to a holy God. So, so Christianity is not about evolution, evolving, cleaning ourselves up, getting better so that God might be pleased with us. It's not that at all. Christianity is, is, is it's about revelation. It's God comes to us and he reveals himself to us through the person and work of Christ. We could never get to God. So God comes and he lives with us. He, he puts on flesh. Jesus has eternally existed, but in a moment and in a time, he added humanity, right? And so we see here, he's willing to humble himself to the point of even being baptized in the dirty waters of the Jordan River to just show there's no length I won't go. And if you think that's amazing, well, he's going to go to the cross and say, and then when you look at that, you're like, well, man, if he'll go there, the baptism, I mean, it's still pretty impressive, but but he went to the cross to be spit upon and to be mocked and to be ultimately murdered. Why? Because he was a sinner? No, because he loves sinners. And so this is Luke. He's laying it out for us so that we might see, right? So, so think back to creation, right? Not that you were there, but if you've read your Bible in Genesis. And if you haven't read your Bible, it's okay, right? I remember being saved at 23 years old, and people would say, think back to creation. I'm like, yeah, don't know that book yet, right? Turn to the book of Numbers. I'm like, ah, is that a book, right? And I didn't understand all that. So if you're new to Christ, if you're new to Christianity, welcome. That's where we all began, right? Whether you were four, whether you were 40. But if you can think back to creation, you'll remember that the whole Trinity, right? One God, three distinct persons, they were active in the work of creation and they said let us make man in our image right well here we see the whole trinity again at work and in this in essence they're saying let us save man 
Let us save man. All, all three persons are at work. All three persons care about sinful humanity. This is the kindness of God. Do you know him? See, there's something profoundly comforting when we think about the whole beauty of the triune God at work to save sinners. You, you hear the tender voice of the loving father saying to his son, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And we, and we see that the spirit in the form of, of, of a peaceful dove, right, descending upon the son. It gives you a picture of this peace, right? Not a war bird. No, he, he comes down in the form of a dove to show my son, he's coming. He's full of grace. He's full of truth. And it descends upon him. And then you see the son joyfully submitting to the perfect plan of the father. This is our God. All three persons are equally concerned. All three persons are equally engaged in the work of saving souls, of delivering people from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son. Listen, the Trinity delights to save sinners. Trinity delights to save sinners. God delights to save. Jesus said, I came to seek and to save the lost. He loves to save lost people. This is why he came. Right, okay. Now we get to everyone's favorite part of the Bible, genealogy, right? It's like, it's like a Hebrew phone book. We're not going to read any of it. Why? Because Kevin read it wonderfully, and I would butcher it, right? But there are a couple of things I want us to notice. Notice this. Jesus, in verse 23, says, Jesus, when he began his ministry. Jesus began his ministry. Notice this. Being always precedes doing. Don't ever miss that. The Father assures Jesus, you are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. I'm well pleased in you. But I haven't done all the things yet. I'm well pleased in you. Oh, how many times in Christianity we think that doing precedes being. I do, therefore I am. That's religion. It will wear you out. It will grind you to a pulp. You'll always be trying to get a love that God in Christ has already provided for you. And you need to receive and embrace it. Right? Because that, then, then guess what comes out of that? Doing. Because it's a response to the love. But we don't do to get love. So here we are. Jesus is reminded as a human, right? I love you, son. You're my beloved son. Now he begins his ministry at about the age of 30 years. And then we're going to skip all the names and go right to the end to where it says the son of Adam, the son of God. Listen, if we were to take our time and read down through this study and, and each person mentioned, here's what you would notice. These people, right, they represent an unbroken chain of sinful human beings needing to be saved. That's who they represent. I mean, if you look at Matthew's gospel, what you'll notice is the genealogies are a little bit different. It goes to Abraham in, in Matthew's. Well, here we go the whole way back to Adam. Why? Well, I think jo Joseph's genealogy is in Matthew. But here we got Mary. And Luke has a different audience. And, and here's the thing he wants them to see. He wants us to think about the garden. And you're going to see that as we continue through this text, right? But notice, they, they all need to be saved. So who cares? What's the point? Why did Luke put this here? Why did Luke put this here now specifically? 
Why not sooner? Why not earlier? Those are good questions. But notice that the, Luke's genealogy begins with Jesus, but it works its way all the way the back to the garden with Adam. It says the Son of God. Now, it's different. <laughs> He's not eternally the Son of God, right? But, but the, he was created by God, right? Some mud, breathe in the nostrils, bam, right? Rib, woman, marriage, creation. But notice, listen, why Adam? Why here? Well, Adam had no earthly father, just like Jesus. Jesus was adopted by Joseph, but Joseph wasn't the dad, right? Well, he, Adam faced the, man, he faced temptation in the garden in Genesis 3, and it was in the richness of the garden. Don't miss that. God spoke everything into existence. The sky, the planets, the seas, vegetation, animals, everything else, and he pronounced it all good. Adam walked with God and was surrounded by provision in paradise. And he was tempted, and he was without sin. Yet, still, with all things perfect, Adam willingly chose to rebel against his creator willingly chose by the way this is known as the fall of man you ever wonder like what's wrong with the world this is what's wrong with the world ever since the fall of man humanity has been infected and affected by sin and it ravages us it's our nature right it's who we are to the core of who we are until we have a new identity until we're born again the bible would say right and so but adam didn't have that yet in this moment he chose to rebel and Adam brought upon a curse upon us and the world. And because of that, the man who was designed to walk with God in unbroken fellowship, he fell from that exalted position in that moment. Now, I'd love to talk about Genesis for a lot longer. But there's only one thing I'm going to talk about. One is notice in Genesis 3.15, you can look there now or you can look there later. But what you see is the first announcement of good news. In the midst of chaos, in the midst of rebellion, what you hear is God preaches good news of a promise. And here's what he says. Genesis 3.15, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's talking between the serpent and the woman. I'm going to put war. There's going to be strife. There's going to be a real problem between you and this woman and between your offspring, Satan, brood of vipers, right, and her offspring. He who's that? Well, at this time, they didn't know. At this time, if you're understanding the Bible, you understand that he's Jesus, that he is Jesus. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. See, at the cross, when we get there in like three years, if we keep going this, no, we'll get there sooner, I promise, right? At, at, at the cross, what you're going to see is Jesus stamps right on the head of the serpent, and the cross does inflict a wound upon Jesus, the head crusher, but that wound is fatal for the devil, right? Jesus is wounded at the cross, but he, but he defeats the devil. Well, guess what? This moment right now in the temptation of Jesus and the devil matters for that moment. Matters for that moment. See, God promised that one day he would save a people for himself. And he would save them from the eternal sin and consequence and make all things right once again. And Jesus is that promised head crusher. So really, homework, right? Like, I didn't come to church for homework. I came for, well, heat and okay coffee, right? Um, <laughs> you, you, hopefully you did come for homework. Read Luke 4 
alongside Genesis 3. Just do that, okay? Because i got to move on, because we got a lot more text to cover. But there's some real beauty there if you look and if you ask the Lord to see. Okay, point two, guess what? Jesus is the new and better Adam. He's the new and better Adam. Look at Luke 4.1. Okay, so right coming out of the, the genealogy, here's what it says. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit full of the Holy Spirit, returned to the Jordan and was led by the Spirit. Where? Into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. Uh, Warning. Ready? Coming to faith in Christ does not necessarily lead to a comfortable life. Chances are it won't. America, let's say primarily, let's say nominal evangelical people, are, are very confused at understanding the cross, the gospel, and following Jesus. We have, we have made it a prosperity thing. Well, if you mean prosperity as in I'm an heir of all because I'm in Christ, amen, hallelujah, I can get down with that. But if you mean a comfortable life, if you mean no tension, no problem, nothing, you're going to have a real problem through Luke. They have a real problem with the rest of the Bible. Why? Because Jesus, he didn't come to faith. He, he is the word, right? But the Spirit led him into conflict. Led him into conflict. Why, why don't we just go to En Gedi? There's some waterfalls there, Spirit. No, we're going to the wilderness. Well, what's going to happen there? Satan's going to tempt you. Well, it doesn't make sense. And No, he didn't say that. We say that. We wrongly think, man, come into Jesus, everyone will like me. Jesus was and is perfect, and people murdered him. Why do we think that? It's not a biblical thought. See, don't miss this. Don't miss the contrast, by the way, between Adam and even Israel, right? Israel is called God's son uh, throughout the, the, New Test- or the Old Testament. And now Jesus here, he's in temptation. The first Adam fell to the gorgeous serpent in the glories of Eden. And now what we're about to see is Jesus, who is called in the Bible, the second Adam, is about to face Satan in the alluring presence in a barren desert. Adam fell when he had everything. Jesus had nothing except he had the spirit at work, and that is sufficient. And if that's true for Jesus, guess what? It's true for you. It's true for you. Well, what's this temptation look like? Well, let's continue. Luke 4, 2 through 4. Here's your first temptation. Or let's say Jesus' first temptation. And, and he ate nothing during those 40 days. And when they were ended, so 40 days had ended, he had a 40-day fast, he was hungry. I go 40 minutes and I'm hungry. He went 40 days. Okay. The devil said to him, notice the words, if you. Oh, man, don't miss that. If you you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. All his quotes are from Deuteronomy. Jesus knew his Bible, which was the Old Testament. Okay, It was just the Testament then, but it's now old. Right? He knew his Bible, and he quoted the Bible. He is the living word, but he's going to the word. Don't forget. Man, we need to know the word. Yes, that's true. But he said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of, that comes from the mouth of God. And he's saying, I am the word of God. Okay, well, what's the problem? 
What's the problem? Why, why not turn some stones into bread? I mean, if, as we go through, you're going to see that Jesus will turn water into wine. So why is, this a, why is this a temptation? Why is this a problem? Can't he do that? Doesn't he have the right to do that? He finished his 40-day fast. He's hungry. Let's get some bread. Well, I think what you're going to notice as we go throughout the gospel, every time that Jesus performed a miracle, it was always to glorify the Father and to bless others. Always. Every time. Every time he performs a miracle, it's not about him. Well, this would be about him. And so instead, he was glorifying his Father by not serving himself, but instead trusting the Father in his moment of need. He was hungry. Could have he done it? Yeah, he could have done it. But he was trusting the Father. What can we learn from that? Well, there's a bunch we could learn from that. But one thing I think I want us to see that we should learn, faith, trust in God, however you want to say that, prefers to wait for God rather than to satisfy its own needs and wants. Now, you can apply that to your own life in many ways. If you're waiting for a spouse, if you're waiting for a promotion, if you're waiting for uh, an opportunity to do something in ministry, if you're waiting for children, if you're waiting for retirement, if you're waiting for someone else to get into office, whatever. Many times we're tempted to insert ourselves and to be God instead of waiting on the Lord. And when I say waiting on the Lord, the Bible doesn't mean we all just sit around ho-hum and just like, come on, zap us. Right? It's actively waiting, it's trusting, it's pursuing, it's reading the word, it's praying, it's gathering with a community of people. It is taking steps of wisdom, but it's not trying to manipulate the hand of God. And here we see that Jesus is waiting. All right, let's keep moving. Second temptation Jesus faces, Luke 4, 5 through 8. And the devil took him up, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and he said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then, here's the little caveat, will worship me, Satan is saying, it will all be yours. And, and by the way, you might be really having a tough time with that. Satan is the God of this world, right? He was cast down and now he was ruling, not ultimate authority. We have a sovereign God who's ultimately in control, but he has, he has opportunity to tempt Jesus with this in his humanity. And look what Jesus says. He, he says, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Okay, well, what's the problem? Well, there's a lot of problems here. See, the devil is offering Jesus essentially a crown without a cross. You don't think that's tempting for the Son of God in human flesh? He's, he's saying, listen, that whole road to the cross thing, so I got a road to comfort, bro. And that's how Satan talks to me. And, and, and it's awesome, and you want to suffer. It, no, forget Calvary. How about some comfort? We can do it right now. Just worship me, is what he's saying. And he said, like he's saying, no pain, no weeping over Jerusalem, no shame, no, no spitting on you, no nails in your hand, no nails in your feet, no spear in the side, none of that. No cross, Jesus. What do you say? And Jesus stands strong and says, no way. No way. What can we learn? <laughs> Gosh, these could all be sermons, but they're not. We can learn this 
Faith prefers worshiping the one true God compared to even ruling the world. And we've traded in Christ for a lot less than ruling the world. Well, maybe I have. I can't speak for you. I mean, how tempting it is to just want to trade him in on something much less than the king of the world. And Jesus stands strong. Let's look at the next temptation. They just kept coming. Luke 4, 9 through 3. He took him up to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, here you go, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Satan's quoting scripture now to the word of God. That's interesting. And Jesus answered him, It is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, don't think he just had three, by the way. We see three. We see three. Every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Okay, so he's gone. Okay, the devil loves to twist scripture. Just like he did with Adam. Just like he did with Eve. Now he does with Jesus. And he's essentially saying, did God really say? That's really what he's saying here again. Work for Adam then. Work for Eve now. Oh, how about you, Jesus? Did, did God really say that? And Jesus knows the word because he is the word. And he understands the context of the living word. And if you don't know the word, you're going to allow yourself to be manipulated by people who will take the word. Sounds good. Sounds right. Is truth from the Bible. And they'll twist it. And they'll take it out of context. And that make a real problem for you in your life. That's why you must know the word. So what do we learn here? Well, faith prefers to trust God rather than to test God. That's what we learn here. It, it focuses on the certainties of God. It focuses on the promises of God. The things that we know that are explicit from the word of God. And doesn't try to take the Bible and manipulate it into saying things it doesn't say. How about I get the promised land? Or how about America is God's people? No, Israel was. And now you're adopted into the family and you're grafted in. So like we take the Bible and we make it say all these things it doesn't say. Instead of just sticking with the plain meaning of the text and embracing all the beauty that's in the Bible for what it says. It's what it says. What the Bible says is far greater than what you could twist it to say. So will you trust the word? Okay, so don't miss the point. So many times right now is when well-intended, and I mean this, preachers, teachers will then say, okay, there's our text. Let's run to application. And how can you fight the devil? First off, that won't go well. It won't. Um, but, but we are in the Bible commanded to resist Satan and he will flee from you. So we are going to get there. We're just not going to get there yet. We're just not going to get there yet. Because to do that is to say, okay, that was cool. Now let's talk about doing some Dungeons and Dragons stuff with Jesus. What's the main point? Jesus is way more than our example. Before he's ever our example, he's our savior. He's, he's the ultimate conqueror. <laughs> he's the one we fix our eyes upon before we start talking about what we now need to do. He is, in this moment, victorious savior who slays the serpent with the word. And he flees. Oh, if you're like, I feel so weak, I don't even know if I could beat up a Care Bear, let alone stand against the devil. Well, you have one who has slain the serpent. 
Jesus Christ is victorious. In him you stand if you're in Christ. Like, I don't know if I can even get out of bed. He has done it in your place, right? You, you got to get this. That's point three, by the way. Jesus is victorious. Do you think of Jesus Christ like that? Seriously, ask yourself that. Or do you think of him as like meek and mild? By the way, he is meek and mild. But, but sometimes we take that and we make that the only attribute of Jesus Christ. The only attribute of Jesus Christ. It's not the only attribute of Jesus Christ. When Jesus returns, he will not be meek and mild. He will rip open the heavens and he will step back into human history and he will rule. And every knee will bend and every tongue will confess, Jesus Christ is Lord. You, every human, from every moment in every time, will glorify God. It's a fact. I don't want to. It don't matter. You will. You will either glorify him in his magnificent mercy, or you will glorify him in his justice. But he will be glorified. And so Jesus comes, and, and he's victorious. What's the point? Answer? Jesus. He's always the point. He's always the point. He's the main point every time. He did what Adam, Israel, you, me, and everyone else failed to do. He won. He won. And so it's in this moment, Jesus, man, you can start to see recreation is it redemption he's starting to reverse the ravages of the fall even in this moment in order to accomplish this defeating satan man does that matter right first john three eighteen says the reason the son of god appeared was to destroy the works of the devil is that the primary reason that jesus came that's a good question it's a question i ask often in order to destroy the devil. Is that the ultimate reason Jesus came? Answer, no. It is a reason he came, because the Bible just told us that. But, but it's, it's really just a means to accomplish the ultimate end. And then the question becomes, well, then what, what's the ultimate end? Hang on. See, a major part of reversing the curse is destroying the devil. Let's look at Hebrews 2, 14 through 15. You can turn there. You can listen uh, as I read, or you can make a note and look later. But you should look. So it says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood. I'm in Hebrews 2, 14 through 15. What's that mean? Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood. Meaning that's us. We share in flesh and blood, right? Human. He himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things. That's Christ, the eternal beloved son of God. He, he added humanity so that, listen, through his death, right there we see the cross, the substitutionary work of Jesus upon the cross. Why did he do that? Notice what it says. He might destroy the one who has the power over death. Who's that? That is the devil. Okay. No wonder, by the way, in that moment. By the way, don't detach your whole brain from just that text. God is ultimate authority right? It, we don't do dualism. Good God, bad God, and Satan, right? Ultimate sovereign Lord. So the only power that Satan has is on loan from God Almighty, okay? But because of the fall, every human 
is in Adam and therefore every human dies physically and eternally unless God does something to reverse that curse. And this is part of that. And, and notice it says, why? No wonder that the devil was working hard to tempt Jesus in this moment because not that the devil would know all this, but he, he's got to understand, man, if I could get him to skip the cross and go straight to the crown, then, well, I might be around a lot longer because he understood probably a little bit that the cross was his ultimate destruction. Son of God, he's here I mean, you're going to see it as we go through the book of Luke over and over. The demons shudder and say, is it now time? They know they're on loan. They're, they're on a loan time. And it's just a matter. And so they're putting all their forces together to trip them up. And Jesus is victorious. Notice why. It finishes in verse 15. And to deliver all those through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. What did Jesus come to do? He come to set Slaves free. Slaves of what or who? Good question, Satan. You're in the domain of darkness. I'm coming and I'm going to open the gates of hell and we're going to storm the gates of hell and we're going to set captives free. Free to what? To enjoy my father. <laughs> That's why I came. That's why I came. And, and this is all part of it. Jesus came to set us free. And so let's discuss, okay, what does he set us free from? Satan, sin, death, Amen. Hallelujah. Absolutely. But many times we'll stop there and we'll forget what he has set us free to. We'll talk about how, how Jesus has come to set us free from Satan, sin, and death. And we should. We should talk about that. But your freedom, that's only half of it. The freedom he really offers is freedom to what? Enjoy God. To, to be in Christ, to hear the words, this is my beloved son and or daughter in whom I'm well pleased. Why? Because you're awesome? No, you might be, but it's because Christ is victorious. It's the only reason any of us will be pleasing to the Father is faith. Because without faith, it's impossible to please God. Do you trust that Jesus has done it? Because if you, if you do, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, guess what? You're in him. He's in you. Therefore, oh man, your father in heaven is pleased with you. With you. He's come to give us abundant life. Not when you die. Not when Jesus returns. Yes, when you die. Yes, when Jesus returns. But now, you have life with God now. Yes, life's hard. For some of you, man, when I hear your story, some of you suffer more than others. I don't know why, but I know the Lord won't waste it. But, but your abundant life is now. Because if you're in Christ, you have life. And you have life now and forever. He sees you in your pain, and he's with you in it. Let's, I'm going to listen. I'm going to read a, a handful of texts. I don't expect you to get it all, but I, I really want you to hear. This isn't like some little sub point. This is the point. It's the point of today's sermon of the Bible. You've you got to understand. So Romans 5.17 says this, For if because of one man's trespasses, talking about Adam, death reigned through one man, that's Adam, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace, free gift, and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through one man, Jesus Christ. 
Notice the language. I love adjectives. We're not going to get into all that, but I love, man, abundance of grace, right? The, man, free gift. The, this word free, you receive it. And what do you get? You get life through who? One man, Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 22 says, for as in Adam, all die. All die. He's meaning more than a dirt nap, not less than a dirt nap, but he's meaning more than a dirt nap. He means eternal death separated from God the Father. So also in Christ shall all be made alive, made alive. You, before coming to faith in Jesus Christ, were spiritually dead. God had to do something, a miracle to cause you to be alive. If you've ever said in your heart, man, I love Jesus, I want Jesus, that was a miracle. You didn't do that. Oh, I did that. You did not do that. You responded to the grace that God had already done in your heart, or you still would want nothing to do with Jesus. Nothing. But he's caused your heart to sing. <laughs> That's what salvation really looks like. I love him. Why? Because of what he's done to save me. Did you deserve it? Not on my best day. Not on my best day. If you want to understand humanity, understand this. There's two categories. You've got people in Adam under wrath. You've got people in Christ under grace. Cursed, beloved. That's it. That's it. And God loves to take people from Adam's team and bring them into his family. Why? Because it makes him look magnificent. He delights to save Galatians 4, 4 through 7 says this, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Why? To redeem those who were under the law. Why? So that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. But sons matters there. They're not just being like, oh, I didn't know in 2022 that we couldn't say just sons. Sons matters because only sons could be heirs of everything. He's actually elevating women in that moment by saying, sons Women, your sons, which means you get it all too. Because in that culture, only men got it. But in Jesus' economy, guess what? You're made in the image of God, whether you're a man or whether you're a woman. And when I bring you into my family, it's equal. You get it all. That's what he's saying. And so it continues. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. We could talk about that for a day, but you could just go back and listen to it last year when we went through Galatians. Okay, now with that foundation laid, as we understand that glorious truth of all that Christ has done, He's done. What do we do when we're tempted to sin? It's a good question. It's one that needs to be answered. Because what's he doing there? He's going to drag you out of the family. No, you don't have that power. You're still, if you listen, if you're in Christ, you're trusting in Jesus for your salvation, it's finished. Secure. You're in. You're sealed with the Holy Spirit. But, what happens when sin comes knocking at your door? What, what happens there? What happens when I sin? Do I get removed from the family? Nope. The tempter comes along 
in order to bring you back into shame, but it could do nothing to take you out of the family. So what do we do? That's a good question. Let's look at this. Um, when that happens, what, what really is going on is we forget who we are and we forget whose we are. We really do. This is so much about identity. Bless you and bless the rest of you. Right? Why should she get all the blessings? Um, when this happens, when sin comes knocking at your door, what's happening there is you're tempted to forget who you are in Christ and whose you are in Christ. And, and you go back to your old way of life, your old nature. Why? To drag us back into shame. Why? Because what does Satan hate most? Well, he hates you, but he hates God being glorified. He hates God. He hates Jesus being magnified. He hates when, when churches really seek to elevate and lift up the name of Jesus, not man. Oh, you want to lift up man's name in the name of Jesus? You can have big churches all over the place, I promise you. But if you seek to live a life devoted to Jesus Christ and have Jesus' name magnified through suffering, through sunshine, whatever, well, he doesn't like that. And so he will come knocking. And when he does, what do you do? That's the question. So let's look. Three things. We're going to go somewhat quick, but we'll keep working at it as we go through Luke. How to stand firm in your faith during your own temptations. One, understand your truest identity and trust the love of the Father. It's not a question, will I be tempted? You will be tempted. <laughs> you will. You might be tempted now. If not, by the end of the day, I promise you will be tempted. How do you know that? Because I've lived long enough to know that's true, right? Understand your truest identity and trust the love of the Father. 1 John 3, 1 says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. <laughs> Notice he says love, that we should be called children of God. And I love it. He says, and so we are. We are. You are. If you're trusting in Jesus Christ for your salvation, listen, settle it in your mind right now. Your Father in heaven delights in you. He loves you. You're his. You're his. If he sent Jesus to die for you while you were weak, ungodly sinners rebelling against God, how much more might he love you now that you've trusted in his grace? infinitely more. If he, he would send Jesus to die for you while you're an enemy of God, how much more might he do to save you, to help you in the moment of temptation now that you're his beloved son or daughter? Infinitely more. You've got to remind yourselves, listen, you can be adopted by God in Christ and still live as an orphan, filled with shame, and your identity, even though it is child of God, you might cling to victim more. You, you might cling to religious rebel more, although you wouldn't call yourself a rebel. You, you might cling to so many different identities that might help explain who, what you do, but they don't explain who you are. They might explain pieces of your life that help shape why you do what you do, but that is not who you are. This culture messes up identity all day long. All day long. Who are you? What do you do? I'm rich. I'm this. I'm that. No, 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 no. Listen, people who, by God's grace, love Jesus Christ, your truest identity is you are a beloved son, daughter of God Almighty. No matter what else anyone ever says to you, including Satan when he comes whispering. 
not really audibly. If that's happening, we should talk. Um, but you know what I'm talking about when the temptations come. See, why is this important? Because if you don't understand your identity in Christ, you will always anxiously try to earn the love of the Father. And you think, well, why would that be a problem? Because that will lead you into so many problems in life. It happens because we don't understand the gospel of grace. You did nothing to cause God to love you. He loves you. <laughs> he loves you because it's from who he is, not what you've done. Right? And, and so Martin Luther said this when he was asked how he overcome temptations of the devil during the Reformation. He says this, well, when he, meaning the devil, comes knocking upon the door of my heart and asks who lives here, the dear Lord Jesus goes to open the door and says, Martin Luther used to live here, but he has moved out. Now I live here. Martin Luther's a wild guy, right? Um, but if you get that, oh, that changes things. That guy's dead. Scott Rising is dead. He's nailed to the cross. See, you were, you were nailed to the cross. The moment you believed, you were executed for the sins you committed because you and I deserve death because the wages of sin is death. That means the moment you believed, you were put upon the cross. You're like, I didn't even exist. I know, but in God's heart, mind, understanding, you were nailed to the cross with Jesus Christ and went to the grave. And that means the moment Jesus resurrected on the third day, you resurrected with him in life. Therefore, the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That is not you anymore. That's why your primary identity, people say, oh, I'm just a, I'm just a, I've heard Christians say this all the time, I'm just a wretched sinner. True, but keep going. Because that's not your primary identity, and that's why you're always staring at your navel and got more lint going on. But if you would lift your eyes from your navel and start to look at your Savior, you might understand, that's not me. That guy's dead. Who am I? I'm beloved son of God. So guess what? That changes. Behavior. Behavior. Why? To get him to love you? No. Pay attention. Seriously. It's because he does love you. And oh, and you understand. Every one of us need to understand God loves you in spite of you. And when you understand that, Jesus, whatever you want, I trust you. Why? Because I see what you've done upon the cross. And if you did that while I was a weak, ungodly sinner, what might you have in store for me as your son, as your daughter? Oh, so much more. Being before doing, right? Point two, let's keep moving. Be full of the Spirit. We're going to go a little long today. I will get in trouble. It's okay. <laughs> Point two, listen, be full of the Spirit, be full of the Spirit. What's that mean? Be full of the Spirit. You hear preachers say it all the time. What the heck does that even mean? How? What? What? Right? Here's where people get nervous, by the way. You're like, uh-oh, here's where it gets a little wacky, right? Because people have a weird... Man, when you talk about Spirit, if you have church history, people have a strange fascination that gets unhealthy, or they have a fear. We want to be Bible people, Jesus is full of the Spirit. Luke's going to talk about the Spirit all day long through the Gospel of Luke, and he's going to talk about the Spirit all through the book of Acts. We ought to be a people that are full of the Spirit. So you can be adopted. An adopted son or daughter of God is to have the Spirit. Or another way to say it is you, you can't be a son or daughter of God 
if you don't have the Spirit. See, Spirit matters here, right? Romans 8, 9, second half of it says, anyone who does not have the Spirit does not belong to Him. If you're in Christ, you have the Spirit of God dwelling in you, in fullness. See, most often when Spirit's mentioned, we get a little nervous, but, but that grieves the heart of the Father. And I'm going to tell you why it grieves the heart of the Father. Because Jesus, who is fully God, fully man, and in His humanity, before His ministry, was filled with the fullness of the Spirit. If Jesus, the perfect God-man, needed the Spirit to do what God had called Him to do here on planet Earth, how much more might we need His Spirit to do what He's called us to do here in Greensburg? Infinitely more. Infinitely more. So then if we say, think, or live as though we don't need the Spirit, essentially what we're saying again is, God, we don't need you. We need, need to have our minds transformed. Transformed. You might have some oddities that need fixed. Well, that's fine. Get them fixed by the Word of God. Why? Because the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. Power. You and I are powerless. God gives power to our efforts. One, you know, throws some seed, one waters, but who gives the growth? God. Otherwise, we're just spitting in the wind all day long if God does not bless it with his power. Right? You could go and get yourself a little raft and throw up the little sail, and you could blow in it all day long, but you're going to be exhausted, and you're not going to get real far. What you need is wind. What we need is God's Spirit. Two texts, not going to read them all because, okay, be filled with the Spirit still sounds a little vague. Two, two ways to be filled with the Spirit. One is pray. I was going to read these texts to you when I thought I had eight hours to preach today. Acts 4, 29 through 31. Okay, so make a note there. What it's going to say is you're going to see that they're going to, they're going to be praying and they're going to be filled with the Spirit and they're already believers and they're going to be compelled with boldness, and they're going to go out preaching and speaking the word in boldness. So that's Acts 4, 29 through 31. Pray. So you want to be filled with the Spirit? Ask God for the gift of the Spirit. Guess what? Your heavenly Father delights to pour out more of himself in you. In you, right? Two, sing. Sing, 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 sing. I don't have a good voice. I don't care. Sing. I remember going to church. My dad's here first time at For the City since we even planted this. And I would go to church with my pap, and my pap would say, Oh, Scott, maybe to keep it down, you don't have a good voice. I had a voice like my mom. My mom didn't have a great voice. He didn't mean anything by it. That's just that culture and at that time, and I'm just fine, right? So he would just be like, Whoa, you're a little loud. So then I was like, Whoa, way down here. Sing. If you can't sing good, sing loud. For real. Now, Hannah's getting nervous. Right? Because I'm putting you guys on a mission to sing. But here's why. Because singing, listen, a church singing, it's praise, it's prayer, and it's proclamation. And, and we're singing not for the worship team. The worship team exists, listen, to get the instruments to go. And guess who the instruments are? If I trusted that Colton wouldn't kick me in the knee, I'd pick up his guitar and go strum. It's not the guitar. It's you. It's you. It's to do everything we can to set the table so that you will sing out to this glorious God. Why? Because you need it. But guess what? We need it. That's why we, there's something glorious that happens in a church that just sings out. 
Something beautiful. So understand this. To be full of the Spirit is you are in Christ. You're full of the Spirit. And then you continue to pray and ask God to give you more of himself and to just remove all the clutter. And you sing out. And as these things happen, he begins to do that. Because understand this. You cannot be full of sin and full of the Spirit. You cannot be. And so that's the third and final point. You've got to be full of the Word. You've got to be. If, if, if being full of the Word means coming to church once a week, if that's where you're at, it's okay that you're there. It is not okay you stay there. Well, you didn't feed me. It's not my job only to feed you. I've heard pastors say it's not my job to feed you. I'm like, read your Bible again. It is my job to feed you. But think about mama birds chewing up worms, puking them in their baby, right? That's gross, I know. But it gets the point across. That's kind of Sunday morning. I'm eating all week, and I'm feeding you from what I got. But man, it'd be great if one day you just said, I'm going to get out of this nest and go grab me a worm, and I'm going to go share that with someone else. That would be good. That would be good. So, before the Word, people who are filled with the Spirit, listen, are saturated in the Word. Word, Spirit, we believe here at For the City Church that God's Word, God's Spirit is sufficient for God's mission. We believe that, all right? Psalm 119, 11, I have stored up your Word in my heart that I might not sin against you, right? So I know, you can know the Word like the devil, and that's not helpful. Satan's, he, 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 you think he has a scroll? Uh, it says right here, he knows it. He knows the word. And he's tempting the word with the word. But he's twisting it. He doesn't love Jesus. There's nothing in him that loves Jesus. I know lots of people who know the word, but don't love Jesus. Therefore, they don't know Jack. Je and you think, oh, that's a little bit strong. Jesus is stronger because Jesus is going to come to the Pharisees and he's going to say, have you never read? All they did was read. Read, read, read. And he's like, have you, have you never read? Oh, that's tough stuff, Jesus. But, but here's the deal. What, what then makes it understand that I'm full of the word? It's head and heart. Oh, you can know the Bible. Point your little head and talk to everyone and make sure that you take your little sword and hit the little tin cans and make them feel bad because they don't know the word as well as you. Well, la-dee-da. But can I just tell you right now, to know the Word, you want to know how you know the Word? You will love God, and you will love others. Who's the others? Fill in the blank with everyone. You know the love of God, it grows in proportion. You can't say, I love God this much, I love His Word this much, I just hate people. You don't know the Word. Have you never read? <laughs> Jesus says, oh, to, to know me. Man, you'll know my disciples. You'll know my disciples who know me by how smart they are. Mm, no. By how they what? In interpret the Hebrew. Mm, no. By how they love one another. See, to know the word is to know what it means to love. That's what it means. <sighs> Can I have two more hours? Just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> Just, I want that. Some of you would be down with that. Some of you wouldn't. I'm going to read one last text and we're going to pray. Psalm 119, 103 says this, How sweet are your words to my taste. 
if, if you come to the Bible and it's just like gravel, I've been there. Oh, I've been there. Ask for spiritual taste buds. Ask him to make the word sweeter to you than honey on your mouth. Honey gets a bad rap in our culture because we have so many sweet things. It's like whoop-de-doo. But if you didn't have all the sweet things that are available to you at Starbucks here and there, imagine for the first time that you had honey. Imagine if all you ever ate was just kind of like rice and beans. Now you got some honey on your tongue. That would be awesome. And, and the psalm writer here is saying, that's what the word of God is to the taste buds of your heart. You might be saying, that's not my experience right now then ask God that he would change your experience and keep going to the fountain to drink and trust that he'll provide because he's good like that. What's the point of all of it? Ready? Here's the last point that's not even in your map. When Jesus fills our hearts, our minds, and ultimately our lives, Satan has no entrance to room and to move about. You want to know how to stand against the schemes of the devil? Be full of God. Be full of his word. Be full of his spirit. And be in community and lock arms with one another. God help us to do that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. And Lord, we thank you that, Jesus, you are victorious. <laughs> we stand or sit. We are placed in the beautiful fact and the absolute stunning reality that it is finished, that you've done it all. And because you've done it all, we can absolutely find sweet rest, even though the battle rages. The war has already been won. Help us to believe that. We ask this in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. If you found it helpful, we encourage you to enjoy more of our sermons, find out more information about For the City, or how to partner with us through prayer and giving at www.forthecity.church. For the City exists to magnify Jesus by making disciples who share and show the transforming power of the gospel and plant churches that multiply.